Hey friends, welcome to Recovering with Danny. I'm your host, Danielle Van Kay, and this podcast is all about eating disorder recovery, being a single 30-something, navigating the dating scene, and going through, you know, an existential crisis or two. My goal as an eating disorder recovery coach is to help you start living the life you have always dreamt of. Welcome to the show. Hi, everyone. I am so happy to be here with my friend and colleague, Amalia, who you also know as everyone thinks her name is Amalie, but I, I'm the, I think I'm the first one who actually knows on social media. That's, it's Amalia, right? It's Amalia. <laughs> How people call you Amalie and how annoying is that on a scale from one to 10? You know what? Uh, depends on the day, but overall, I I have I've gotten used to it. I understand that you know not everyone knows you know because my name is is a Norwegian name. So yeah. unless you're from Norway or Denmark, as a lot of people are named Amalie in Denmark as well. I understand people haven't heard the name before, so I try not to get annoyed. What does annoy me is when I've told people repeatedly and they still don't get it right. Then I'm like, they're like, come on. Yeah. <laughs> but I don't expect people to know my name perfectly. But Amalia is preferred. <laughs> You know what's so funny? Because my Instagram handle, my actual name, you no one can pronounce, you know that. So I, that's why I have like a pseudo name. But mm. still the Dutchies, so but Dutch people will call me Denny van Kai. <laughs> so mm. I, I purposely did it to do it, to, to basically have it pronounced Denny van Kay. So it's mm. honestly people, you know, call you whatever they want to call you. It's fine. We're, yeah. you know. We're, we're okay with it. Exactly. I, assume, I don't assume bad intentions from people, basically. No, no, no. <laughs> Actually, no. So one thing that I, I mean, I, I don't know if, I'm, maybe some people who listen to this don't know, but we ran a course together, which was called the Buy Ad course. And I think it's, it's a year ago now, wasn't it? Yeah, like, yeah. We had two rounds of it. So we had one round in the spring, early yeah. summer, and then we had one around, I think around this time. Yeah. Yeah. And we had over, I think, 200 participants and it was quite successful. And I actually have still people talk about it uh, and that it was so helpful. So, yeah, yeah, same. Yeah. And it was for the, it was a very low price point. It was 29 dollars uh, taxes included as well. So <laughs> we got a lot of information. We are both basically not good with math. Okay. So we just thought, here you go. Here you have a bunch of information. For the lowest price but well, we made a change i feel like right yeah yeah and i still have people trying to join and i was like it, it was a year ago but <laughs> appreciate the interest still <laughs> yeah yeah so in case someone does want to join it's over it's done um so no tickets are being sold anymore so mm-hmm. anyway um i oh, this is almost the intro introduction in itself but uh, amalia for everyone who doesn't know you by now and who has been living under a rock for all this year or all these years, why don't you just introduce yourself for a bit? Yeah, so my name is Amalia. I am also an eating disorder recovery coach with lived experience and also have my own podcast, Recovery Talk, which uh, Danny has guested as well. Uh, we did an episode on, I uh, remember, was it fear of uh, emotional eating and unhelpful treatment professionals? So, yeah. yeah. Uh, yeah, so I'm an eating disorder recovery coach and I do social media. I run the platform Let's Recover and I'm using my 
of also using my lived experience as someone who's recovered from an eating disorder many, many years ago now. I'm almost 10 years into recovery now, eight, nine. I, geez, I feel it's been so long, right? And yeah, uh, that is pretty much me. I'm Norwegian, so you can maybe hear my accent. It's a, a little bit, um, yeah, hard to identify. People usually can't quite tell where my accent is from because a bit of a mix of everything. I'm Norwegian, but I am living in London. I've been living here for the last few years. And yeah, that's pretty much me. Amazing. You know what I find? So you inspired me to start a podcast as well, but I, I obviously I didn't want to do it in the same way because you are the OG when it comes to podcasting about just any topic for that matter. And I refer anyone who I know and everyone actually talks to my clients, the people that I know, everyone's always like, Oh, recovery talk. And, and I have, I think you're, yeah, I don't know if you tell, but your downloads from the Minnesota starvation study episode. Oh my God. That one is legitimately i mean it's it's insane it's so good it's so good it's, it's, it explains everything thank you thank you i'm you mean you can't see me but i'm sitting here smiling i feel very happy for that and i have really been enjoying my you know podcasting journey it started as a thing i was kind of like you know i just want to because you know sometimes you you probably have the same thing you'll get dms or you get comments where someone asks about something and you're just like I want to answer you, but this would take me 30 minutes to explain, right? And then being able to explain it verbally and going in depth more than you can in like an Instagram, TikTok. So I feel like in social media, um, it's so much pressure on delivering information as quickly as possible, right? It is like you got 15 seconds, one minute to deliver everything quick, 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 right? And I kind of find it interesting to have a podcast space where I can really dig into things, taking some time, explain it in detail, uh, so I really have been enjoying it and I'm very happy about, you know, the feedback as well. Right. Yeah, no, you're doing an amazing job. I think you're one of the only few people that are just literally taking those topics one by one and just really dissecting it. And I, we already did that in the course and uh, also from a scientific standpoint. And I think that's just kind of what was missing all this time. So you're really, I, I mean, impeccable job. So, yeah. I, I know. Thank you. Thank yeah, you. Yeah, you are a fan of your podcast. So, anyhow, um, we are going to talk about something that we're both kind of in a similar situation. Um, Amalia, like, is well. I mean, her diagnosis was a little more recent, I would say. So, we're basically going to talk about chronic illness. Um, in combination with still making sure that you're not slipping back into an energy deficit because we do have a genetic predisposition. Obviously, we are people with a history of anorexia with a rest or with a restrictive eating disorder. So we can't afford to do any of that, like not eating, skipping meals. And uh, so, yeah, we are the mechanical eating queens as actually um, Amalia just thought of this title, which is amazing. So... <laughs> Um, as someone that's been recovered for so many years and suffering from a chronic illness, and you kind of have a, like I said, a recent diagnosis, right? Do you, do you want to explain to people what you're currently suffering with, the diagnosis is, and to what extent it affects your day-to-day -day life? Yes. Yeah, so 
it is complicated. But basically, to try and sum it up quickly, I suffer from something called dysautonomia, which is essentially dysfunction of my autonomous nervous system. And my kind of dysautonomia is called POTS, so postural orthostatic tachycardia syndrome. Uh, what that essentially means is that I have orthostatic intolerance, which means that I, when I stand up, I have a lot of symptoms, right? So overall, I'm someone who has to sit down quite a lot. And um, POTS is a symptom in my case. It seems to be related to the fact that I suffer some form of hypermobility disease. They don't know which one. They don't know if it's hypermobility spectrum disorder, if it's Ehlers-Danlos syndrome, that we are still investigating, right? We, we do know I have POTS. And unfortunately, with POTS, people can have it, you know, light cases, strong cases. Unfortunately, my case, my, my case is pretty bad. Uh, so I have a lot of, you know, on a bad day, I will just flat out collapse. Like I will lose consciousness and collapse on the floor on a bad day. Um, and I have a lot of nausea, a lot of nausea, headaches, uh, dizziness, heart complications. Um, I'm taking heart medications now, which has been helpful. It's just like a bit of a full body illness. And then I have my hypermobility thing, which basically messes up my joints. So I have a lot of joint issues as well. My knee has jumped from one place to another, to put it that way. Um, so it's it's a bit, it's one of those typical cases of a complex chronic illness where there are a lot of dots that are eventually connecting. Uh, I seem to have, it seemed in my case that my POTS have been activated from glandular fever. So I actually got my POTS after my eating disorder. Actually, after my eating disorder, I was quite fine, you know, and then it seems that the POTS was activated by a viral infection and then it just got worse and worse. And especially the last year has been pretty bad and I kind of have been forced to face it because I had quite a few collapses. Um, so that is pretty much my case. Um, I do feel like I've been quite lucky in terms of, even though the waits are long with uh, getting support, healthcare, blah, 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 I feel like I've always, like lately, I, I feel like doctors are supportive. They believe me, they send me to the right places, they give me the right medication and getting, I feel like I'm getting good support in that way. So that's quite nice. Uh, but it is a pretty exhausting illness, right? And it does, as you said, Danny, it affects appetite, right? It gives, in my case, semi-chronic nausea. Mm -hmm. So it means that just if I were to intuitively eat during bad days, I wouldn't eat enough, right? And I know we spoke about this with mechanical eating because that's essentially what mechanical eating is, eating despite not necessarily feeling like it, right? Mm -hmm. so yeah, that was a bit of a tangent, but that is me, my condition, and a bit how that affects my I guess, way of eating, right? That I have to do a lot of mechanical eating, which I guess you have to do as well, right? Mm, oh, absolutely. And this is the, I mean, it sounds like you're describing my life, but then also it's, it's quite fascinating because so many people with Lyme disease, which everyone knows by now, that's something I have, but in case you didn't know, I have chronic Lyme disease, had it over... Now, I think 11 years, so it's been a ride, and my health is currently, uh, Amalia knows this as well, very much declining again, because it's kind of like a roller coaster, because when you have chronic Lyme disease, you never really get well. You can get into remission at some point, but you'll have to do so many treatments, and a lot of them have side effects, so many symptoms, um, and you never know. There's, there's just no cure for it. That's basically... It. And I, in the beginning, thought, oh, my God, I finally know what I have. Because, of course, as you, I remember, actually, one year ago, 
we were talking and you were already having, you were having some symptoms and um, you didn't know what it was, right? We were like, okay, well, what could it be? It's like this guessing game. And you should never go on Google because, of course, everyone does that. We all do that. We're like masochists, right? Everyone who is suffering from something, we go on Google, we're going to try to find it ourselves. And you also have to be lucky when it comes to doctor's appointments, specialists. I mean, it's actually quite similar to eating disorder recovery in general. If you don't have great help, you know, it's it's quite hard to recover. But... Um, so many people with Lyme disease, I don't know if you know this, have POTS as well. So I did a lot of tests for that as well. And I'm still actually doing some tests because they might think that I have a mild case of it. Honestly, at this point, I think I have everything. <laughs> but yeah, it's just the nausea. And the, that's actually something that um, we have in common is that we feel nauseous literally I mean, I feel nauseous basically every single day, every single day, hmm. right? You're, are you, the, would you say you're the same? Not every single day, but the majority of days and it kind of comes and goes. Like for instance, this morning I was, I was with my girlfriend and we were just sitting in bed and I had like, we, we had like a smoothie and I just acutely like, oh my God, I feel so nauseous. And then it just lasted for like a minute and then I was fine. And then it, it completely fine. And then it's so a very on and off. It's like very, very random and strange, right? Yeah. Yeah, and for me, the nausea as well. Um, I don't know if, if you can relate to that. I So I had emetophobia, which is the fear of throwing up. And um, I've never also during my eating sort of never threw I, I never threw up. So that was not a thing. Um, and so when I'm nauseous, I'm also kind of freaking out at the same time, which doesn't necessarily help. So I'm trying to stay calm and mm-hmm. eat a lot of like, that this is also something that we can cover because I'm quite interested in things if there's certain things or certain foods that help ease your nausea because mm-hmm. I get this question so many times because I mainly help people with comorbidity because mm-hmm. I would say I'm kind of specialized in that area because I have had comorbidity for basically mm-hmm. uh, the majority of my life so um, and also when I was suffering from an eating disorder mm-hmm. Um, so were, are, are there any specific things you would eat when you are very nauseous? Yes. Okay. So my staple food, I think a lot of us who suffer with nausea uh, have like a few staple foods that are like our go-tos, right? At least I have that. And mine is salty pretzels. You know, those little, uh, oh. little pretzels, not the big pastry ones, but the small ones you get in a package exactly. of salty pretzels. Yeah. I always have salty pretzels in my house. So with pots, you need to eat a lot of salt because basically it has to do with the way I think your kidney filters out a lot more salt. So my sodium levels, if I don't, I, like I, I, my required salt intake is something like six to 10 grams and they're normal, that's, which is like a lot more than a normal recommended intake, right? Mm-hmm. So high sodium foods, but also in general with nausea, what I see, what I find is that salty foods that are more energy dense, and a little bit bland, right? I can't have, for instance, when I eat the pretzels, I prefer just plain pretzels, not like pretzels with a bunch of different spices and flavors, just mm-hmm. plain, bland, salty foods. So pretzels, really good one. Also find just rice with soy sauce, pasta, maybe with some butter and salt. Um, <coughs> sorry. And popcorn, salty popcorn, um, nuts, 
as well, especially salty nuts, any kind of energy dense food. So basically, I think the mistake a lot of people with eating disorder does is that they think that they need to fill up on fruit and veggies, right? And don't get me wrong, I'm not saying there's anything wrong with eating fruit and veggies. We don't want to like eliminate anything, right? But I think if you're struggling with nausea and you're thinking, oh, I'm going to reach my, you know, recovery minimums, filling up on broccoli and, you know, all of these very like high fiber, low energy foods, you're going to be so stuffed and so nauseous, right? So when you're experiencing nausea, what I would recommend is focusing on energy dense foods that you find it easier to get a lot of, right? And also be mindful that some energy dense foods may be, they might be energy dense, but you might not find it easy to eat a lot of them, right? For example, full fat milk is, I like you can say full fat milk is an energy dense drink and it's something I would drink a lot in my recovery. But I noticed that full fat milk, it filled me up quite a lot, right? So when I was nauseous, it was maybe not the best thing to eat. And popcorn maybe wasn't that physically filling, but it was something I could eat a lot of without being nauseous, right? So be a bit mindful of that as well, that it's about being a food being energy dense, but also food that you are able to eat more of, right? Right. No, absolutely. No, I, I can relate to the pretzels. Oh my God, the, the, I've, I have like these... I think there are one kilo bags. I'm not kidding. I have like five of them and I, I'm going through them like crazy. So anything salty and, and crunchy and uh, really curves. Funny enough, but when you say popcorn, I already get nauseous thinking about popcorn. For oh, some really? reason that makes me nauseous. Yeah, I don't know. So that's that's the funny thing that everyone has their own preferences. So mm-hmm. I would say it's a matter of error. If I am nauseous, for instance, I can't handle any, like, let's say, smoothies or liquids. Um, mm-hmm. uh, even drinking water is quite hard when I'm on, So I prefer to really focus on the saltines. But sometimes it's actually weird. Sometimes I crave, um, I have these, like, chocolate truffles. Again, like you said, energy-dense foods. Mm-hmm. Um, and I will go through an entire pack and I'm so fine with that. And I'm not nauseous. Now, normally people who are not like very nauseous don't go for the chocolate necessarily, mm-hmm. but for it, it kind of depends on the day as well. Yeah. I would say, right. Yeah. You know, I think this is important. Everyone has different foods that they can handle when they're nauseous. Like you said, things such as smoothies does not work well for you when you're nauseous. Me personally, I can handle smoothies when I'm nauseous. I mean, I just told, literally told about this morning when I was nauseous when drinking smoothie, but like, I still, I can handle smoothies more than certain other things. But then there's certain other things that I don't handle as well when I'm nauseous, right? So I think this is, because very often I find that people with eating disorders, they love comparison, right? And they will hear, for example, oh, Amalia said she eats popcorn when she's nauseous, but then it doesn't really work for them, Right. You can, you might find that ice cream work for you when you're nauseous, or you might find that it doesn't work for you when you're nauseous, right? Find foods that work for you, but equally be a bit mindful of your brain's tendency to choose safe foods and to use your nausea as a reason as to why not challenge and push other things, right? That is a big one. Very often people will be like, they experience the comorbidity of nausea uh, in eating disorder recovery. They will use the nausea as a reason like, oh, for example, I can't eat let's say I can't challenge my fear of ice cream because I'm nauseous, right? And then they just stick to a few safe foods because of the nausea. So it's always about finding that balance there, I think. Absolutely. I could, couldn't agree more. And I think what's, this is, this is going to be an important one. So I, 
so you got your diagnosis quite recently and you have already been recovered for quite some time. So for you, it's, I mean, that this is something that you just kind of answered already because I wanted to ask you, did, did you find it hard to not slip into an energy deficit? But it sounds like it wasn't, that wasn't the case for you at all because you were so aware of it that, okay, no, I need to full, you know, really focus on the yeah. um, calorie dense foods that are also going to curb my nausea right so that mm. didn't like something that was something you're struggling with but honest honestly most people who probably will listen to this podcast are currently dealing with an eating disorder and this is my mm-hmm. personal situation i had lyme disease and then i went to so many you know doctors and they all put me on certain protocols which was obviously sugar-free gluten-free dairy-free everything free everything fun-free basically and my eating disorder of course got a kick out of that because yeah and that's that's kind of how also how I relapsed so how would you because we kind of talked about this off air how to kind of not get into the rabbit hole of protocols and all of that when you do get a diagnosis or when you are chronically ill or sick during having an eating disorder and during being in recovery? Mm -hmm. That's a really, really good question. And I feel in some ways, I feel like I'm a little bit lucky. I mean, not lucky, that's not the right word because there's nothing lucky about having POTS, but I feel like I'm a bit lucky that have maybe POTS because the thing with POTS is that it is a very what can I say? It's not a very medically controversial diagnosis, right? It's a very, that's diagnostic criteria is pretty straightforward. They just measure it. They can see it on, at an ECG. They can, you know, it's very straightforward uh, in terms of identifying POTS. When a doctor know about it, of course, many doctors don't know about POTS because it's like, mm-hmm. it was not, an, it's like a, quite a recent uh, discovery of that illness, right? Before they just didn't quite knew what it was, but now they know what it is. So when you have POTS, it's pretty straightforward. The basically the man the way to manage pots is there's a specific you know medications and then the dietary change is actually increasing salt intake and making sure you're eating sufficient regular meals but i know with certain other illnesses for example i know with lyme i know with for instance ibs a lot of illnesses where there are different opinions within the medical system of what it is what it causes what is the approach right then i know a lot of people end up in rabbit holes right so Mm -hmm. i feel like having a condition where there is medical agreement that this is what works and this is what doesn't probably saved me some struggle in that sense. But because I see other people who have other illnesses where the medical system can't really do that much for you, you know, they're kind of like, oh, we don't really know what's going on here. Then you kind of get sent into these rabbit holes, right? And this I see a lot with people who have certain chronic illnesses where there is not the best treatment approach to it, right? So I feel in that sense, I feel like I'm lucky because my the way to manage pots there isn't as diet culture the advice you know if anything the advice to increase salt a lot of people with eating disorders fear uh, have eating too much salt they're like oh I, I salt is bad for you blah blah they have a lot of ideas around that right, right. so I feel like I miss. I feel like I got lucky in that way. I'm sure there exists, you know, diet culture advices for POTS as well. But overall, the main treatment, there's not really that many alternative treatment protocols that are being as marketed towards POTS as certain other conditions, right? But the conditions where POTS can be a comorbidity, for example, Lyme. So POTS, essentially, the way POTS work is that it usually 
POTS is a disease that happens as a result of something else, right? So it happens as a result, for example, if you have Ehlers-Danlos syndrome or you have hypermobility spectrum disorder that can make you more prone to POTS. Or if you have a if infection, I had a very bad case of glandular fever, which seemed to have kicked off the POTS and then it gradually got worse. Same thing with Lyme, right? The POTS will be secondary to the Lyme. The Lyme will kick off, you know, that infection will yeah. kick off the POTS, right? So I guess... Well, I feel like that is answers a bit of it that I feel like I've been lucky that have an illness where that is not as those treatment protocols aren't as marketed towards it. Right. And I feel like I haven't been just left on my own in that way that I see a lot of other people have. But I also feel like time did me a favor because, like, as I said, like I the the POTS situation got very bad more recently. And at that point, I knew everything, like not everything, but like I knew I knew that I have that genetic predisposition. I know that ending up in an energy deficit was a risk if I were to completely intuitively eat and just do whatever. And I knew how important it was for me to, you know, stay nourished, stay fed. And I was able to do that just following mechanical eating. Um, so I think my awareness saved me and I think the timing saved me. I think if I had gotten sick with with this during my eating disorder, I think my eating disorder would have loved trying to use this as an ammunition as to why not recover, why recovery works for other people, not me, why I'm the unicorn, right? Mm, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. I think this is one of those things where you, if you are struggling with this and you're in this situation, oh my God, I just gotta be, I, I've just been told that I can't eat or that or the other. And, and obviously, you know, it needs to, if something does create huge flare ups, even just as, like it's not simple, but like something such as celiac disease. If you you can't handle gluten, you're not going to have gluten because of course that's, that's going to aggravate every any symptom. Mm. So it and it's the same with in my case. I I know that I'm intolerant to many things, but and I've I've actually was very drastic with cutting out all those things. And yes, in some cases was it helpful in my with my pain and all of that maybe but then again i don't really know because many things that can also aggravate pain or sickness or illness or symptoms just in general i mean just take stress as an example stress is a huge one that mm -hmm. impacts so many factors and so many things and so many ailments so I would say find guidance, find someone who is specialized, even in, like um, preferably you know, even a, a dietitian who specializes in eating disorders and comorbidity because they can help you, guide you through this whole journey. Because I, as an example, I recently, um, I'm working with a client and she has these, this is, and I, I feel so much for her because I've been there. She has severe, like, stomach issues digestive issues but she doesn't know what's going on and she went to a specialist and this specialist didn't give her the time of day first of all and he also pressured her to start weighing so he said no step on the scale she said no i don't want to and if i do i want to do it blind and he said no you're just stand on the scale and you're just going to see it also, so stepping over someone's boundaries, but okay. Mm -hmm. And then he continued, he proceeded to say, literally, and she said, I am in recovery from a restricted eating disorder, which is called anorexia. You motherfucker. And then he said, okay, so what's going to help you to not have as much stomach issues is basically move more and eat less. 
Jesus Christ. But that's literally so she she was of course shaking when she got out of that appointment and this is mm. causing trauma. This is mm. causing trauma to go to another one. So she has a couple of uh, another couple of uh, appointments lined up and she is terrified for obvious reasons because if if someone says this to you I mean, it's it's just I I'm I was just baffled the fact that someone who is clearly specialized in just one particular um, thing, which is gut health, uh, and then doesn't really care about anything else. This girl is in recovery. You can't say it's mm. third move. Also, movement was a huge part, a so compulsive part of her life, and I mean, I was just blown away just hearing that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I see. This is this is why it's so important to always view the full person, not just the lens that you have, right? So for example, if you are specialized in, let's say gut health, you will see everything through a gut health lens, and you will completely neglect the mental aspects of it, right? This is why I think if you are someone listening to this, and you have some kind of comorbid condition, gut issues is a very, very common, if you have severe gut issues, it's so important that the person you work with is someone who for instance, a dietitian that is specialized in eating disorder, not just the the gut health, right? Mm -hmm. First of all, I will say, maybe this is my personal opinion as well. I think in the whole world of gut health, gut healing, I feel like part of it's become a bit of a buzzword. And I think that a lot of times what is being neglected in that conversation is the way that restriction damages gut health. We know that it's something like, I think I read was something like, 80% of patients with anorexia admitted to hospital had so bad gut issues that it would be clinically fit the diagnostic criteria for irritable bowel syndrome, right? Right. So severe gut issues is the norm with eating disorders, right? And very often we tend to cause what is lack, what is caused by the lack of food on the presence of food, right? This does not mean that every single person with gut issues and eating disorder for them, the gut issues is the eating disorder, just the eating disorder, right? There are many people who may have celiac disease, may have an allergy, we know that. And we also know that it can be more complicated than that. It could be that someone's gut issues may be caused or worsened by their eating disorder, yet managing this in recovery, that is something to work on with an, a dietitian, mm-hmm. with someone that can help see that comorbidity, right? And don't work on just taking away, taking away, taking away, instead working on adding in, right? We know also that some intolerances and sensitivities with eating disorders actually improve in recovery with exposure to that food. For example, we know that a person who is um, energy suppressed, what often happens in some people is that their body will stop producing uh, the necessary, you know, enzymes to break down lactose. So basically they develop secondary lactose intolerance, right? So a lactose intolerance that happens as a result of energy deficiency. And we know with that case, we know that actually taking away the dairy completely is just going to worsen it, right? We know that then actually gradually increasing intake so that the digestive system can can heal and repair, and then also implementing the diet products so that the body can learn how to digest it again is actually the solution. But very often here, if you go to like a gut healing coach, they will just take away this, take away that. And some cases that is necessary. If someone has celiac disease, you can't just gradually train your body to digest the gluten again, right? But it is always about finding that balance between implementing and working with the pain, working with all of the conditions, seeing the full person, and remembering that an eating disorder is a disorder too. Not just, you can, yeah, maybe you can have the perfect 
you know, gut diet, but if you're still stuck in orthorexia, you're not living a full healthy life, right? Yeah. Yeah. And I think we both, we have such a holistic approach. It's, it's all interconnected. And, uh, you know, the, the people that I'm talking to who go to these doctors who are literally, I mean, I wouldn't say crazy, but kind of, if you're yeah. going to tell someone who is in recovery, say, okay, move more, eat less and start weighing yourself. I mean, what the fuck? Uh, but if it impairs and affects the way someone can eat, aka also get towards nutritional rehabilitation. If someone is literally sits on the toilet the entire day, yeah, it's going to be quite hard to reach nutritional rehabilitation at some point. Obviously, yeah. right. So it's and sometimes it's as quote unquote simple as just trying out certain supplements, certain medication, you know, and that's what I'm hoping to even find myself as well. I, I recently told my mom as well, if I'm fine, you know, I, I've always lived with pain ever since I got Lyme disease. I am, I, of course, I don't, I, we, we both don't love our illnesses. That's a fact that you, well, you will never love the, the fact that we're ill and, and mm. really still accepting it. It sometimes I still I'm I'm very angry at my body. I won't lie. That's still something mm. thing. And I think many people with with um, Ill, chronic illnesses or you know any health problems can relate to that. Mm. Having said that, you know I really 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 hope that one day I will be able to do just do my thing and still mm. be ha- having my uh, disabilities, which I think will well knock on wood you never know will be a part of my life but if it does impact my day-to-day life which now kind of is the situation it's my pain is so severe and it's for me it's in my eyes as most of you know now but if it's like on and also I'm recovered so you know there's no problem there and I can I can really force feed myself or eat mechanically like we do but if you are in recovery and you have like gut issues that are so freaking severe that it impacts your recovery just overall um a work with like we said someone who's really specialized in the the two so an eating disorder and you know something like gut health so preferably a dietitian or some someone who just like a doctor who specializes in that mm. and b also like sometimes you have to try things out so either that certain foods, certain protocols, uh, which doesn't impact, of course, your recovery. But if again, if you have guidance, someone can guide you through that. It's it's kind of kind of like let's be real. If you are chronically ill and you are in recovery, it is a bit of a shit show. It is. Yeah, I think uh, what you said very well. You know, with like trying things, and I think this is something I see a lot of people with chronic illness and eating disorders where what happens is that people develop a terror like this big fear getting terrified that they will do something that will make their symptoms worse and I completely understand that right it's like it can be you know sometimes that's the thing sometimes it can be really scary for instance like oh what if I eat this and then I feel sick and yeah I understand that but also sometimes it's all about knowing that you know you can't spend your whole life terrified of, for example, refeeding in case it will give you some nausea or some pain, you know, mm-hmm. instead work around that, try it. Yeah. If you tried that and that made you ill, now, you know, right. 
But I think sometimes people are so scared of making a mistake or doing recovery wrong or eating the wrong thing that they just don't do it at all and just stay stagnant, right? So it's about finding a professional that you can work with and work on implementing, adding, expanding your life rather than just taking away, taking away, taking away. That's at least the way I see it. This is such a good point. This is something I actually had a conversation with the other day with my with my mom because I'm again I'm recovered for now I think seven or eight years. Like you said, it's hard to keep track. But um, and I obviously am suffering quite a lot. But here I I'm in the south of France. Um, and I I mean I'm based in Amsterdam, also kind of in the south of France of the time so and in the south of france we all know we've got the most amazing pastries here the croissants the tartatas the oh god everything is just delicious and 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 amazing so i knew that if i would go to the south of france that my um let's say sugar-free options or gluten-free options are just less available and if they are they're just so freaking expensive here for some reason. I think the French just don't give a flying fuck. They're just like, hello, we're French. We eat a baguette. That's just, <laughs> you know, it, it just gluten is part of their day-to-day life. Fair enough. Having said that, you know, it's still hard to find options. So the other day I had a conversation and my mom said, Jesus, Annie, you really, and we don't live together. So she doesn't see me eat, but she said, I was just having a very high pain day and um, I don't know how we came to this topic, but I just sh- said, yeah, I had dinner with my friends and I had pasta and then afterwards we had like uh, this chocolate thingy mousse uh, or no, what's it, what's it called? Um, anyway, it was a chocolate thing and then uh, bring the tails, uh, I don't know, social things. And she said, well, you know, I don't want to be a Debbie Downer, but it could be, you know, your sugar intake because you know that sugar la 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 and as a young mom the thing is i also need a social life yeah and i i'm now at the point where i really have to outweigh the pros and cons and i've always done that i mean i knew from the get-go i was intolerant to so many things so i knew that okay if i do eat eat certain things i will be bloated or pain or whatever and of course if it's debilitating pain I would say, okay, well, try to find alternatives. Don't cut it out completely out of your life. If you can find alternatives, that's great. But like you said, it's something that so many people think, oh my God, I'm just not ne- never, never going to touch this. Well, mm-hmm. you really can't have a life because food is, is, is social. Mm-hmm. That is such a good point. That I can really relate to that just in not necessarily with food, but with other things. Like there's so many things from my pots that make it worse. Uh, alcohol, lack of sleep, heat, et cetera, et cetera. So especially heat, that's a good example. Um, I have uh, intolerance for very high temperatures. Uh, and I, yeah, I need to, on one hand, I need to be careful because it can be, if I collapse I can hit my head get a concussion you know it's not great it's not that I need to be careful with but also this summer I was kind of like yeah I am in I am heat intolerant but I also want to be able to go to the park with my friend I will try like yeah I know it's not going to make me feel amazing I know it's going to make me feel a bit worse but I want to have a social life as well I don't want to just spend my life alone and isolated I know that when I have a Maybe, you know, I'm, I'm watching a movie with, with my partner and I know that we're staying up a little bit later than usual. I know that that's not ideal pots wise, but I also know that I can't 
spend my entire life just trying desperately to avoid every symptom. I think I actually live better when I wake up and I am a bit tired and dizzy the next day, but I, I made a good memory, right? So it's all about finding though that balance between, of course, you don't want to actively do things that just makes you super sick and put you at risk, but also accepting that, you know, chronic illness, it, it's, you are not put on this earth to be the perfect patient, right? To not to spend your entire life around your chronic illness and avoiding flare-ups, right? And I think that finding that balance can be so difficult. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So th- this is literally, yeah, this is this is it. And what I'm curious, how about how do you communicate that to the people around? You? Because I've had to learn that uh, the hard way as well, because when you're let's say when you're dating it's also different from let's say friends i would i mean that's my personal experience with my friends i literally this first second i meet them i'll tell them hey i've got lyme disease and it's just you know so for instance when i go out and i dance they are i honestly i think i have the best friends in the world but i'm biased because they're my friends but they will just literally the other day my my friend rose she and rose if you hear this you are the best (laughs) she just pulled out a chair she found like a chair somewhere i don't know where she found it and she just put it in front of me she said you can sit here if you want eh? just so so you know so that's something that because also it affects my uh, all my muscles lines so just the fact that i could dance and sit in the meantime so i was sitting dancing it was just so amazing so this is kind of how i communicate mm-hmm. with my friends from the get-go so they don't or won't be disappointed if i cancel or and because i don't i i hate to be a burden that's has always yeah. been thing. so how do you communicate that to romantic partners you know, I feel like I'm very, very lucky in the sense that I have good support in that arena. So what I found helpful is I was upfront about it, but it was not necessarily like on the first date, I just give my entire medical history, right? But I was upfront about it. And I one thing that I found to be the most helpful in a romantic context is don't assume that other people know your needs, right? I think this is the mistake people do. They think that, oh, well, this is my partner. They should just know. They should just remember. They should just know that's not how it works, right? So I find it helpful to communicate very, very clearly. This is what helps me. This is how, and not, just not leaving anything to the guesswork, not assuming that other people know, right? Mm-hmm. And I found it very helpful. For example, with my girlfriend, we split tasks a bit, you know? Uh, for example, she really likes to cook. I hate cooking and standing up to like cook can make me feel quite unwell because I have orthostatic intolerance. So intolerance to stand up, right? Mm -hmm. So for example, we know that she loves to cook. So she does that job and she often will cook and then she will cook so that I have food for a few days because she knows that that really helps me when I feel nauseous. And, you know, so she, she's adapting in that way. And then I will, you know, support her in different ways that doesn't have to do with, you know, physically standing up and we have separate lives, separate expectations of what I'm joining and what I'm not. She got her life. I got mine. Right and but overall I think the communication has been very very important and being very specific right I love the example you said with that chair that is a very typical thing my um my partner is like she knows that I can get dizzy when standing up Mm -hmm. right so she will like just keep a little eye on me sometimes when I stand up again and then it becomes a bit of a habit so 
I think this is a thing, just being upfront, communicating, of course, I'm not saying you should overshare on a first date or just go straight into it. You know, you can, you can share your vulnerability in a pace that fits you and feels natural. Right. Mm -hmm. But don't overextend yourself. And I think this is another thing that's very important. I try not to say yes to a bunch of things when I know that there's a high chance that I won't be able to do it. Right. Yeah. If, for instance, my partner suggests, oh, let's go to the museum. And I know realistically that I've been feeling quite unwell. And I know realistically that walking all day is not going to be a good idea for me. I communicate that beforehand instead of saying yes and then canceling. So that's another thing I feel has helped me because if not, there could be some resentment building up, right, by being the person who cancels. So right. I think those are things that I found helpful. That's that's awesome. That's such a good one. And I'm so glad you found someone who is so supportive because also I think so many people, I, I because I get this question quite a lot, how do you communicate your illness? And uh, I, I kind of have like, I would say a lot of dating experience. I've been dating up a storm since I, I discovered Tinder, let's say. Um, so I, in the, in the beginning, I was really upfront and then I, Point, uh, because I was doing better I didn't really well, well I, I kind of slipped it in there but I really didn't tell them how it impacted me for instance I need a wheelchair uh, at the airport so traveling and walking long distances I just can't do I can't walk and I can't stand but also not long I feel like same as you are I can't stand for that long. I have a bar stool in every, well, I have one that I put like in my bathroom, in my kitchen. So if I do my makeup or brush my teeth, I always need to like sit down doing something. Um, and I mean, you know what? It filters out the good and the bad people because if people don't respect or understand it, which has happened to me, and yes, it was painful and I cried. I literally had a guy saying to me, because I was basically, I was working a lot and a lot of flare-ups and flare-ups with the eye pain and he literally said the words to me I just can't date someone who is so impaired and impacted and disabled mm. and I was like okay and that hurt and I cried and I was like well good riddance you know yeah yeah he wasn't the one for me and my ex-boyfriend he was the most amazing man ever he you know I had a I have an invalid chair in my um in my shower back in Amsterdam and uh you know he was we were we were we basically had plans to go out and uh he canceled because he saw me and I didn't even tell him he saw me showering sitting on the invalid chair but I didn't want to tell him that I was kind of like in a lot of pain because I didn't want to rain on on his parade and I again I didn't want to be a burden so I thought oh, I can work around it I can just sit in that club or whatever and he called his friend. He said, no, we're not going out because then he just, you know, she's in a lot of pain. So here, you know, here's another example of, I would say, yeah, some people take it well and other people don't. And that's on them. That's mm -hmm. on them. See, this is the thing. Dating is selective, right? You're supposed to find your people, right? And I, I think too often people treat dating as going on an addition to impress the other person, right? And be this perfect, you know, be whatever that other person wants you to be. But that is not, that might work for a date or two, but that's not going to work for an authentic connection, right? I know that part of the package of dating me is that I'm probably not going to be the person who joins you out to party late at night, you know? I know that I'm probably going to be more someone who has early nights. I know I'm going to be, you know, I'll, I'll have bad days, I have good days, right? And then... 
that is not for everyone, you know, I, and, and I think that's fine. Some people may want a partner that they can hike with every morning. I'm just not for them, you know, then they can get their needs fulfilled by someone else. It's not for me. So I think, think of dating when you're approaching, if you have chronic illness, yeah, there are going to be people who would, that will be a deal breaker. We can talk, discuss if they're bad or people or good people whatsoever. We, I don't really think that is even interesting of going that moral route and figuring out if someone who doesn't want to date a disabled person are good or bad. Right. Mm -hmm. I think we just need to see more as you want someone who wants you. Because what I see very often is that I personally had a lot of guilt, for instance, with, with my girlfriend, right? I felt, because very often uh, when I was feeling quite unwell, like when I'm feeling unwell, she will come my end. We live, I mean, we live in the same city. I joke that we're long distance, but we actually live in the same city, but we live an hour apart. North London and South London is actually long distance. If you live in London, you know exactly how far that is. It's like a good hour, hour and a half getting there, right? So very often she would come to my end when I was feeling unwell and I would feel so bad about that. Uh, but she would just, what I realized is for her, that was not a big sacrifice for her. For me, the whole thing of going for, to hers is a big thing for me to do because it takes me so much. But for her, that was not necessarily as big of a sacrifice. And she was like, you know, that's not big of a sacrifice for me, right? Was for someone else, that would be a big sacrifice. So sometimes I think we... We tend to assume that what for us is a big sacrifice is or necessarily a big sacrifice for the other person when it isn't, right? And equally, I have certain things that I do. I find it, for instance, for me, supporting someone emotionally, going through something, picking up a phone, checking in on them, that is not a big sacrifice for me. But for other people, they, they that means so much to them and that feels like a huge thing, right? So find someone who their, I guess, quote unquote, sacrifices for you aren't necessarily huge sacrifices for them, right? Mm. So, yeah, exactly. Like, I couldn't agree more. And we are so prone to fill in the blanks of what someone else is thinking and feeling. And that's why, personally, I am someone who is, I'm just an open book in general. Everyone is always like, oh, can I ask you this? I said, no, ask me anything you want. Because I prefer to tell them. And the sooner, the later. And so you, you might think, okay, but you're not your chronic illness or you're not you're not your disease you're so much more so i have friends who will give me so much like different feedback some some will say okay well i think you are leading with that a little bit too much but you know i am currently i'm just not doing well and mm -hmm. actually working going to bed working going to bed sometimes a good day i go with a friend or have a coffee or drinks or a little dance sometimes on a good day again but then I have to consequences so I live a very you know I mean it's it's just different from uh you know a, a, just a normal healthy yeah healthy person yeah so I'd, I'd rather just be upfront and tell them yeah if they that's are, fair yeah. And if, and if they say you know what I like I said that experience that I had with that guy who said I'm not up for this and we we were dating for like two months so it was not super super you know i mean it wasn't on the third date let's say so i felt already kind of emotionally connected and then he dropped that bomb on me and i was mm -hmm. like dude i've told you from the from day one yeah. but i think because people think oh well she's still she presents herself as if she is 
super healthy. Uh, and I do that. I know that. But that's just me. That's just I, I don't think I can change that. Because also when I'm good, I'm really good. When I feel good, I'm, I feel really good. But when I feel bad, I feel like shit. And I can still mm-hmm. cover it up. But nowadays, I do tell people, if they ask me, how are you doing? I will say, well, honestly, not great. But you know, we don't have to talk about it for that long. It's just mm-hmm. It is what it is. Um, I'm, I'm not over dramatic about it. And if, yeah, then that's kind of how I do it. But everyone has their own way of communicating their illness, I would say. 100%. And I think, you know, what is also important, I think often friends who don't suffer chronic illness don't understand is that your friends probably will see you most on your good days and they so they won't see you necessarily about this and therefore they might assume like oh yeah but you look fine right because they'll see you when you have a good day they go see you right and same thing goes with dating right on your first few times when you see someone you know they see you you know on a good day you you know you're going out there put on clothes done your makeup are present they don't necessarily see you on a bad day right i know and now part of dating is gradually opening up to that vulnerability like now my for instance my girlfriend Gradually, she started also, you know, I allowed her in and allowed her to see me when I was also sick. And I knew that that for some people, that's too much. I knew that there was a chance she would see that and be scared or see that and be like, you know, and I also have a my prognosis. We don't know exactly how my prognosis is, but it's probably there's a high chance that I could get a lot worse as well. And we've had that conversation. I told her flat out, you know, that with me, we don't quite know how my health is going to be, how functional I'm going to be in five years, 10 years. And actually opening up to that, right? But that is something when people see you on a first date and they see you and you say, oh, I have chronic illness, but you look completely fine. You act fine because you're having a good day. Then they can get so confused when suddenly you're not like that. But that is the nature of chronic illness is that it's fluctuating, right? That is why one day can show up feeling good or at least appearing to feel good because I think we both, we know how to do things when feeling bad, right? I, you know, you said it yourself, like your, your friends would ask you how you're doing. It's kind of like, ah, eh, not good, you know, but that becomes the normal. Mm-hmm. When my friends ask me like, or when my partner asks me, how are you feeling? I just say like, like normal level of pain, normal level of discomfort, right? We learn how to do things when feeling unwell, right? So I think in a way, our ability to mask as non-sick people, in one way, it benefits us because it allows us access. It allows us to, you know, live normally, but also can create such shock for other people when they, when we take off the mask, when we're being honest or when suddenly we act completely different. Right. Absolutely. Yeah. And I think we're both people um, and everyone is unique in that sense, by the way, someone, I don't know what's going on. I don't know if you can hear it, but like cars are, are tooting their horns oh <laughs> in why fact, can't you hear it all good <laughs> it's like i live in in the, in the middle of uh, london or new york i don't know what's going on anyway <laughs> um no but it's um it's you know one of the things that i still have to learn and uh you know and i i we're always a work in progress and it's letting someone in like you said with friends mm-hmm. even but more so with uh romantic partners I would say letting them in when I am not doing well or when I look at my quote unquote, okay, this sounds horrible, what I'm going to say, but at my ugliest. And when I say at my ugliest, I mean at my literally when I mean when I feel like I can barely talk from pain, uh, when I just can't do anything, when I'm really, 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 really sick. And I haven't really done that actually in the past few years because it, well, the ne- the chance was never really there either because the guys that I was dating were quite, I think, 
I mean, I wouldn't come to, I wouldn't say they were assholes whatsoever, but they weren't the types who, let's say, were very like, okay, I, I'm, I, I'm cool with that. Like you're good with this. So I'm still in the progress process of trying to let people in. Um, and I think my mom is also someone who doesn't do that. So I think I've kind of learned to mask my illness, mm. overall health in general, that I, if I'm not doing well, I won't really necessarily um, let people in just basically. I, I'm really someone who isolates themselves when I don't feel well. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. That is, I used to be like that a lot, a lot. I used to completely isolate myself and it is, I would say it's a gradual process to build up that trust with someone. Right. Because for example, with, with my girlfriend, right in the beginning, when I was feeling really unwell, I would just kind of be like, I don't want to talk like, not like in like a mean way, but I would just kind of be like, I'm just not feeling well. I'm just going to go, go to bed and we talk tomorrow, you know? And then she kind of encouraged me like, Hey, you know, when you're feeling unwell, you can talk to me. You're allowed to like complain. You're allowed to say, I don't feel well. Can I get a hug? Mm -hmm. And then gradually building up that. And now if I'm having a bad day, I know that I can, you know, give her a call or, you know, she can give me a hug. We can do something nice together. She can come over and we, sit and eat mcdonald's in bed watching 90 day fiance this is literally our ritual 90 day fiance in mcdonald's is our set ritual i love it oh my <laughs> so God. it's like about i think gradually in my case i had to gradually build up that ability but also know that not everyone deserves access to your vulnerability right there are many people that i can't have that vulnerability with and i think too often what we do is that we give the wrong people access to a vulnerability and when that doesn't go right we blame everyone we say people can't be trusted when actually it was just a few people who couldn't be trusted right so many people who would not handle my condition right mm -hmm. but that doesn't mean that it doesn't matter that 10 people wouldn't handle my condition because if one person can then that that that's you know that matters right Absolutely. Yeah. And I love that you have that ritual going on. And that's literally, honestly, my ritual as well. But then again, not necessarily 90 Day Fiance, but it's Love Island. And oh, Love Island. That's your vibe. Yeah. Okay. yeah and, and then I really, I, 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 you know, I'm alone. But then again, I, one day I'm going to get a dog again or, you know, like a little chihuahua just sitting on my lap. But this has been my ritual as well for the past few years, just sitting on the couch, just that's about it. I would love to have, um, you know, one day a partner who can accept. I mean, I had that. Let's be real. I had it. Um, so I, I won't say it's, it's, it's something that I'm completely unfamiliar with because I had someone who was very comforting and helpful in that sense and understanding. But I think so many people are just... And also, if you just got a diagnosis and it's so recent... And you're still, again, also in recovery. And I think we, we mainly, we're now talking from the perspective of two people who are chronically ill, but who are recovered. That is a world of difference if you are still in recovery, because you're also still, st still dealing with your, well, mental health in general, but with an eating disorder, with an active eating disorder. And you have to also basically take that into account. So I think, I mean... Famous last words, I don't necessarily have, but I would say, you know, just recovery is also, that's kind of what we wanted to end up any on anyway, is that recovery is so possible, even though if you're chronically ill, because I, th yes. so, I think so many people think I'm signed up for failure anyway, I'm ruined, I can't, I, I thought that for the longest time, I thought I have Lyme disease, I was diagnosed with, which I will do, by the way, a separate podcast episode about maybe 
someone who wants to join me in this conversation, uh, I was misdiagnosed with vaginismus, but I thought, okay, so I have Lyme disease, vaginismus, an eating disorder, I have no friends, I'm in my mid-20s, I, I just, you know, what, what's, what's there for me to, to live for? Literally nothing. And here I am, fully recovered, and life is so poor. I mean, I can't even understand mm-hmm. how, how great my life is despite being ill. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I love to hear that. And I think this is the thing, right? The eating disorder will always give you some reason as to why recovery is not for you, right? And chronic illness, understand if you suffer chronic illness, it can feel like, well, because I have the chronic illness, certain things in recovery don't apply to me. It's not really for me. I don't have anything to recover for. I can't live a full life, you know? But I mean, same here. I'm, you know, I'll be honest. I am pretty sick. Like that is just objectively my functioning is not it's not it's not great but I still feel like I'm a happy person I still feel like I have a meaningful life I have a meaningful job I have people in my life that I love you know so it's possible to be happy with the chronic illness right that is it's possible to recover with the chronic illness and it's possible to live a full life with chronic illness it's not sometimes I I also have those moments where I'm just like mad at my body. Like, why is it doing this? Why can't I just be like someone else, everyone else? Why, why do I feel this way? Why, why is this going on? Right. Get that anger, but still it, it is possible to live a full happy life with a chronic illness. But what I would say, it's not really possible to live a full happy life with an eating disorder. Right. Cause I'm just looking back at like, when I had my eating disorder, I was the, no, the, I was not happy. I was not living a full life. I was not present, right? Even though I am physically probably sicker now than I was during my eating disorder because of the way level of functioning. I mean, not saying I wasn't sick during my eating disorder. Of course I was, but I felt better most of the time during my eating disorder rather than now, right? But still my level of happiness and life satisfaction is so much better now, right? I've met people living with chronic illness and they're, li- and they're saying they're happy, but I very rarely hear people with eating disorders saying that they're truly happy. Absolutely. Amen to that. And plus, you can use your chronic illness as a cop-out to not recover, but that's just bullshit. You can still recover with, an, with a chronic illness. It's just a tad bit harder. I would, I mean, again, I'm speaking from experience. Um, it, wasn't, it wasn't necessarily easier, um, but then again, what is easy? Uh, that's also very subjective. I, I was suffering quite a lot from also chronic like symptoms and everyone's story is unique. Uh, we're, we're not talking about everyone with a chronic illness and everyone is going through the same shit. No, we are all going through our individual paths. But like you said, I've never met anyone who has an active eating disorder and said, I'm fully happy. And it's also not a sustainable way to live because you will, this sounds very hard, but it's the truth you will lose people over having a chronic, uh, sorry, not over having a chronic illness, over having an eating disorder, but not necessarily over having a chronic illness because you don't have um, control over your body in that sense. You don't have control over your chronic illness, but you do have control over your life, aka over your recovery. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think that's the thing. Like like what I always say is that you don't choose an eating disorder, but you can choose recovery, right? And an eating disorder is not your fault, but recovery is your responsibility. Exactly, exactly. Well, I think that's what we're going to end it on. And uh, babe, I can't thank you enough for coming on on the podcast. I really am so glad you were yeah, here. Really enjoy talking with you. I feel like it's been a very interesting conversation. I know. I-
so different from what we normally talk about as well i think mm -hmm. so yeah it's so needed and uh well share where people can find you in case they <laughs> didn't kind of miss that part yeah, so uh, you can listen to my podcast, Recovery Talk by Amalia Lee. I guess you just search for Recovery Talk on Spotify or iTunes or wherever. It's it's on pretty much any platform people listen to podcasts on. Uh, and then you can follow me on Instagram at Amalia Lee in one word, or you can follow me at letsrecover.co.uk on Instagram. I basically have two Instagrams. One is like my main Instagram, and then I have one for more, more just recovery stuff. So yeah, that's where you can find me. Perfect. Well, thank you so much. Uh, we'll definitely do this again, hopefully. Yes. And um, we'll be here next week again. Well, not we, but I am. Until <laughs> <laughs> next Friday. Bye, guys. Bye. Bye. All right. Hey, friend. Thank you so much for listening. My goal is to help as many people as possible. And if this episode supported you in any way, the very best way to show your appreciation and support me is by screenshotting and sharing it on social media. And I would find it is so cool if you could leave a review as well on any platform you're listening on. If you're looking for additional support, you can always reach me on Instagram at Danielle Thenke. See you here next week.